Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We started with one, which was how risky is it to lend Brendan a certain amount of money? Obviously, one of the key questions people always ask about new approaches to underwriting credit is what happens during moments of stress? And it's a question you can model, but ultimately the answer will be, we'll find out when there's a moment of stress. And we saw that the correlation for NIDA for a hardship program was much more tightly correlated with the risk assessments of our models than they were with traditional metrics like credit score. So if you wanted to limit risk in your portfolio as defined by impairments during that period, you were much better off saying, I want the low risk upstart loans than you were, I want high credit score loans. I probably shouldn't have used up that why I like podcasting intro the other day, because that's exactly how Jeff Keltner first came onto my radar by his own excellent show, Leaders in Lending which is, of course, on all major platforms and well worth checking out. But that's okay. Jeff has the sort of career that allows for many angles of introduction. And in today's case, we're going to concentrate on his work with Upstart. Jeff stepped onto the fintech train just as it was gathering speed. So we chat about his career, how the lending landscape has changed in America over the last decade, and the role that Upstart played in shaping what we see today. Now, I have worked in consumer lending in Africa, Asia, and in Europe, but my knowledge of the American markets is purely as a spectator. So I'm really looking forward to this one. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. Jeff Keltner, welcome to the show. You're currently Senior Vice President for Business Development at Upstart, where you've been for the last 10 years, so pretty much from day one. But before that, you were with some of the biggest names in tech, vintage names like IBM and internet giants like Google. So for me as an outsider, you look like the poster child for tech guy becomes a banker, you know, the the origination of fintech. Before we get into that, would you mind kicking us off with just a bit more on that background? How did you come into financial services? Yeah, so I studied computer engineering in college and quickly determined that I liked it, but wasn't as good at it as other people were. So I kind of built my career on the sales, marketing, business development side of technology. And particularly, I think, looking back where technology meets other industries and applications, not the pure tech. So I spent some time at IBM in sales. I spent some time at Google before cloud computing was a thing, selling what became Google Workspace and Google Cloud in the kind of very early days of that. And then really, you know, when Dave Girard left... Google to found Upstart was that same kind of thing where it said these technologies exist and they have an opportunity to make such an impact on financial services. And in our initial belief, uh, really, we're focused on credit. And we just said, hey, that's a such a massive opportunity to take these things that are being used for ad targeting and driverless cars and other kinds of technologies and apply them to a foundational element of the economy, like the way we decide who can borrow money and how much and at what cost. So that was really what dragged us into the financial services space. Yeah. And that was 10 years ago now. Upstart has grown 
alongside really the upswing years of fintech lending in the US. That's right. You know, the way I've been told the story, now I've never worked in the US, but I used to work with TransUnion. I'd speak to my colleagues there. They would talk about that in the last financial crisis, we saw obviously property prices collapse. And so home equity lines of credit disappeared from the market, which created a set of demand from low risk customers who now needed credit in a different way. But the traditional personal loan lenders had either all been wiped out or just had their fingers burnt and, and stepped back from the market. So there was this moment of a vacuum where there were no traditional personal loan lenders. There was fresh demand. And that demand wasn't really willing to put up with the old difficult situation that used to be involved in getting a personal loan. Yeah, And so that allowed fintechs to step in. They stepped in, but more so than that, it's been, don't quote me on these numbers, but essentially the fastest growing product in the consumer credit space. You would have been right at the heart of that. So what was that like? I imagine there was a little bit of uncertainty when you started into financial services and then you stepped right into this rapid change. Well, I mean, I think that our core belief from the very beginning was that it was a little different than I think many fintechs. So I think your story is is broadly right. But let me give you a different angle to think about this, which is it's very true that there were some unsecured consumer debt pre-crisis and that the banks more or less exited that business entirely during the last financial crisis. And that left a vacuum for fintech players to step in. I think the other part of that that you can miss is that the technology that was emerging enabled a new way of transacting, right? Like it wasn't possible before the mid 2000s to do a purely digital loan, right? And so almost all the processes were manual and not because people were behind the curve, but because it wasn't really possible yet. And I think part of what we see is that the personal loan was the first part that you could really do it because you didn't need electronic lien and title transfer. You didn't need an appraisal of a home the way you might in a HELOC or mortgage. It was really a product that could be end-to-end completely digital. And fintechs met that need, but I think it was as much the capability of doing things in a totally different way that was unlocked by the reality of the internet and the reality of an unsecured product as it was purely just a void left by the banks. It was very interesting to step into that. We were not the first player in the space. We actually entered the market with a relatively novel financial product that we didn't see as much traction as we wanted and pivot into loans when there were other fintech lenders that were bigger. And I think the thing that we saw that I think most others didn't focus on as much was the ability to better underwrite credit. The belief that more people are credit worthy than have traditional prime credit scores. And that if you could use modern data science, you could find those people and you could extend credit to more people and lower the price of credit to some of the people that were already being approved because the world is is actually less risky than we think if we can really tell the difference. And that was, I think, less core to many fintechs who focus on the digital cost reduction and less on the ability to actually underwrite credit. Yeah, and it's probably worth pausing here to talk a bit about what Upstart is and, and what you do. Yeah, you're right. What we really do is power banks and credit unions to offer loans on a common technology stack. And it's interesting because I I hear these fintech partnerships and this bank build versus buy. And I think it's a bit of a red herring, frankly, just because if you look at the history of technology in the banking industry, they've almost always been partner or buy the core providers. There's a core set of them and everybody buys it. Nobody writes their own core providers. So I think there certainly is a moment in the emergence of a new category when there aren't as many providers that have the robust capabilities and people build from scratch. But I think it's very natural that we see a common platform. So we use kind of a common technology stack across a number of partner lenders who actually originate and then and then hold the credit risk. So we're not a lender in that traditional sense where we're making the loans or holding the loans on our balance sheet. We're really 
working with financial institutions to help them, you know, better reach and better serve the consumers with, you know, unsecured personal loans, auto refinance loans, increasingly auto purchase loans as well. So, you know, we're we're expanding from that initial core of the unsecured loan and taking it into uh, other kinds of consumer asset categories. You're listening to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan Lagrange and today's guest Jeff Keltner. If you're enjoying it, now's the perfect time to hit that little plus button to subscribe. Now, let's get back to that show. But you've filled that gap in, so you haven't just handed over a bit of data to say, yeah, we're really good at alternative data. Here's an improvement on a traditional FICO score. You've built that platform, basically taking all that friction or as much as possible out of the process. That's right. Well, I think we've really applied machine learning to data, high level four elements of, I would say, the lending process. But we started with one, which was how risky is it to lend Brendan a certain amount of money? Right? Like, what's the likelihood of repayment or default? And, and then, you know, really allowing our lenders to specify, are they comfortable with that? How do they want to price it? Increasingly, I think to the point you're making, we are also applying it. I'd say the second area we really focused on, how do I reduce friction in the process? Right? We didn't start with this insight. So this is kind of one of those you learn in the market. When we started, every borrower that our lenders were approving, we, we did a phone call. We asked for an ID to be uploaded to verify identity, the, the standard kind of KYC stuff that you do. And we had this insight, like for the small loans, it's like it costs too much money to get on the phone with people. Maybe we could just use automated signals to do fraud prevention and not get on the phone just for small loans, just for a few, see what happens. And so we tried it and we saw this 2 to 3x increase in pull through and actually equal or positive credit performance. We went, oh, that's interesting. If I can take a certain amount of demand and turn it into twice as many loans, that's really valuable. And so we started the process of saying, can we use machine learning to get to a place where we're comfortable with more loans of larger sizes, of of longer durations that we can approve without that human intervention? Because it both lowers the cost, but it it reduces the friction. And it turns out consumers are not only rate sensitive on the loan side, they're also friction sensitive. They don't like putting in a lot of effort. So we're now at a place where our lenders see 70% of loans coming through the platform, having no touch origination, where there's ID verification, income verification done in automated ways with very high NPS and, and very low cost. And, and high conversions as a result of that. So I would think of that as like the key two ways we've applied machine learning. And man, they make such a tremendous difference in the experience for the consumer. It's amazing. I, I still talk to financial institutions today that maybe are running digital originations, but they say, hey, we only support current customers on the digital channel. Why? Well, because our fraud prevention mechanisms are based on in-person interactions, they're based on branch experiences. And so it's a whole different thing. And it's easy to say you want to digitize the things, but then to take it, you know, the first step of digitization for many was like, well, I, t- I had this paper form. So now it's a digital form. But when you finish it, it's still like emails to the person you would have put it on the desk of and we wait for them to call you back. And like, you know, process was still the old process. We just had a digital front end to get into it, right? And I think that's that's the first step, but there's so much more we can do. And, and, and the world has evolved a lot since then, but it's a hard problem. You know, I think banks that have gone to digital depository account opening have seen really high rates of fraud and struggled with that. And is obviously in some ways a harder problem when you're lending because you're not taking their money, you're, you're giving them your money. In that case, you know, it's a little harder and you're out the money if you're wrong. And so the risk is a little higher. So I think it's, it's something that a lot of institutions are still frankly struggling with. And it is more risky and they've got the risk of the compliance as well. But for us as customers, we're seeing, yeah, click to buy now on Amazon, like a single click button. You get your iPhone, it takes a look at your face, it opens and it accesses your accounts. We become so familiar with that, that the banks are, I mean, they are in a difficult position. They've got more restrictions than most, but uh, at the same time, our expectations, yeah, very different from from the ones where we could shut down internet as a channel. Yeah, it's the world has changed. Given the timing, so you would have been founded 
coming out of the last financial crisis happened, fully going in a big part of lenders' lives when we hit the COVID times, which obviously mm. started with a lot of uncertainty and bankers being conservative. I imagine several people trying to get a hold of you in the, the first couple of weeks, wondering <laughs> what's happening. How did you see your portfolios perform during the sort of the, the worrying yeah. first part of COVID? And, and what have you seen in terms of like, score stability or performance just of these modern models? Did they hold up to their first big crisis? Yeah, it's a great question. I will say COVID is a pretty unique experience. I mean, it's a once in a century pandemic, a kind of unprecedented level of government stimulus. You saw, you know, hundreds of thousands a week of unemployment filings. And so we've seen some really strange things. I'll give you the kind of early story and then maybe what we see now. So obviously, one of the key questions people always ask about new approaches to underwriting credit is what happens during moments of stress? And it's a question you can model, but ultimately the answer will be, we'll find out when there's a moment of stress. It's the old Warren Buffett, like we find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. And so it looked like the tide was going out. And what happened for a lot of lenders and, and what all of our partners chose to do is to put very generous forbearance and hardship programs in place for people who couldn't make payments. And so we saw what we would call impairment in the portfolio, right? It wasn't really losses or delinquencies. They were just people who were no longer making payments um, for some period of time. And we saw that the correlation for need for a hardship program was much more tightly correlated with the risk assessments of our models than they were with traditional metrics like credit score. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So if you wanted to limit risk in your portfolio as defined by impairments during that period, you were much better off saying, I want low risk upstart loans than you were, I want high credit score loans. Now that stress did not generally result in delinquencies over the medium term because government stepped in. It was a very odd thing to see very high unemployment rates and extremely low default rates on loans, which is like not usually you think of unemployment being very tightly correlated with risk in the credit market. And so you know, you saw strong overperformance on almost all portfolios. I don't think that's unique to Upstart, but we did see again correlation there with the, our risk tiers being being better predictors of that. And now you're seeing, as stimulus has been generally come to an end, you're seeing what I'll call more of a reversion to the mean. And the way I would describe it is it's pretty rapid, right? Like unlike most recessions that kind of start slowly, you saw the opposite here, which was a very immediate shutdown and a very immediate withdrawal of the support that had been maintaining really high credit performance. So I think we're we're seeing something more like 
what you might have called pre-COVID levels of losses. And the, the models have continued to be much better separators of risk pre and during the stress than more traditional metrics. But you're certainly seeing this really interesting credit cycle. I suppose it is in some way connected to to COVID and the, and the costs of all the government programs, but also everything else happening in the world now. As we were coming out of COVID, we've now got sort of bigger financial issues going on in the in the market yeah is muddying the waters this is definitely an interesting time i was i've made the comment to people lately and i you know we'll see when this there's my people be like i've not lived through as many times where you know if you said what's your 50 percent variance likelihood of what the world looks like in six months has been wider like normally it's kind of a, a relatively narrow tier now but i mean it's a pretty wide spectrum for what i think is somewhat likely to be the good and the bad the yeah. upside and the downside of that. But it's, it's a really interesting time to be managing a lending portfolio or doing anything really in the financial sector so you've come through your first big crisis with your models you've also in those 10 years moved from a startup to now public traded company 800 million a year in revenue 2000 employees a big part of the American lending economy. Has that changed how you at Upstart look at your business, the sort of customers you bring on board? Are you seeing now the big established names moving in this direction? Or have you seen that landscape change now that you're so well established? Yeah, I guess maybe this is an early employee slash founder bias, but I don't think it ever feels as well established to those of us building it as it does to the outside. But we tend to look at what we've built as a really great set of technologies. But but our partners are still a minority share of the personal loan market, which is maybe the smallest consumer credit market in the United States. So we kind of look at it as still so much work to do to take these technologies and apply them to a broader set of lenders that are touching a larger set of consumers, right? And then to take it to uh, as I said, we've kind of gotten started in auto refi. We bought a company that does auto retail. And so we've got auto retail lending, kind of in-dealer uh, purchasing. But then obviously, we're still not touching real estate. We're not touching small, medium business. You know, We think these technologies would have a lot of ability to provide products for people using payday loans. I don't want to say we're going to be a payday lender, but people who have short-term liquidity issues who need a more short-term, smaller dollar loan, these technologies should enable a much better option for them than maybe what you see in the payday industry. And so we just look at it and say, hey, we've, we've proven that we know how to do what we do, but we've, we feel like we've done it in a pretty small segment of the market. And so mostly we just see how quickly can we go out and, and start applying this technology to help more consumers on more kinds of products in partnership with more lenders. So it still feels like, I mean, what Jeff Bezos always says, it feels like uh, day one at Amazon. I think we, we still see so much more ahead of us than behind us that our executive team, our founding team tends to be uh, what's next? Where are we going next? What's the next? challenge to tackle uh, kind of team. So it doesn't feel that established to me. It just feels like, hey, we've got a good foothold. And now what are we going to do with it? Yeah. And I think that calls back to your point early on that personal loans is that sort of most simple of lending, not simple in who do you lend to, but simple in terms of it doesn't need the credit card systems or mortgage systems and such in place. But all those other systems are either becoming much more digital themselves or possibly being replaced or look to be replaced by buy now pay later and things coming in and taking away some of the the card market so i think anything based on making it seamless for consumers is going to win so uh, i'd say i agree and disagree with you depending on your perspective on like personal loans is the easiest in terms of there's no merchant you have to pay there's no house to value there's no car there's no repossession i mean it's kind of like the simplest on that level it's also in many ways the most challenging to underwrite because there's no car to take back there's no strong incentive to pay there's no house there you really the only thing you can do is hit somebody's credit report right and so we felt like it was the perfect place to build and test an underwriting engine because it's kind of the truest test of lending you've got a determined ability to repay and likelihood to repay and you've got no backup so we like the starting point there, but you're right. There's 
in so many industries, there is a shift happening in terms of seamlessness of transaction. We saw during COVID, many geographies start to allow, you know, supporting more electronic lien and title transfers for automobiles, supporting at least digital signatures for some documentation that used to require wet signatures that was kind of needed in COVID. And now you're seeing a lot of go, well, it worked pretty well. Maybe we should just stick with allowing digital signatures, which of course simplifies the process for getting a home loan or an auto loan where, where those kind of transfers are required. So I do think there'll be a lot of wood to chop, so to speak, in the making the experience better, which is kind of where we're focusing a lot of those other products in addition to the, you know, can we take uh, the consumer population and approve a larger number of them? And that's still, I mean, always will be kind of part of our true north is, I should say, we did a study that was with TransUnion that said 80% of the American population has never defaulted on a credit obligation. And yet less than half has a, a traditional prime credit score. We just look at that and go, man, we should be able to approve so, so many more people than what a traditional credit score would allow you to do if that's what you're relying on as a lender. We still see that as a massive part of the opportunity in, in every sector. It's a great point because I do some lending in pretty high risk markets. and We talk about 30% default rates, but still, that still means seven out of 10 people are paying their loans back. That's right. That means you're declining two and a half times the people that are going to default who are good borrowers because you didn't know which ones they were. Exactly, yeah. And so I just look at that and I go, that's crazy. Like, you got to think of 30% on the test. Like, that's bad, right? Like, uh, my my kid came home and said, oh, I, I got 70% of them right and 30% wrong. Go, this, this is not good. That's to me where there's so much opportunity to actually improve the you know, the accessibility without introducing... I'm not saying banks should be take on more risk. I'm saying there's really low-risk stuff. If we can identify it, and, and my my suggestion to you is we can. It's identifiable. It's just you got to get much smarter at understanding which are the 30 and which are the 70 in that high-risk market. And when you do that, the 70 look like low-risk people. Yeah, and it is such a more pleasing approach. You know, when I started, high-risk lending was solved by just adding more APR to the mix and <laughs> say, well, we'll lend you at this price. And we used to do quite a lot of modeling and see what the, the risk would be. But you know, limits of the technology meant you would adjust the loan size and things of it, but essentially we could say yes yeah. or no, and yes meant the APR we could do it for, take it or leave it. Whereas finding new ways to get rid of those blind spots in our data to say, yeah, it's a lower one here, we can get more and more people into lending at affordable prices and sure, still try and catch those people where the loan is not going to do them any good or the, the risk of them is too high, but well, my, get some people through the door. Yeah, yeah my, my co-founder Paul has this great kind of construct that really drives home to me the reality is this, you know, every loan that defaults shouldn't have been made. And it's, it's as bad for the borrower as it is for the lender. And every dollar of interest that's above the kind of fixed rate of return, the cost of funds for a bank is really a cost that the good borrowers bear because we're not good at figuring out who they are. And when you think about the delta between the average consumer's price for a consumer loan and the cost of funds of a bank, you go, that's a big price that a lot of people are paying if we had a perfect model, no one would have to pay. You'd approve only those who'd repay. You'd give them all the lowest rate. And that's so like, you can think of our model as being a lot better. But then we look at it in that context and go, man, it's got so much distance between us and that perfect state of a model that can approve 70% of the people in that high-risk pool you have and charge them all the lowest interest rate. That's a tremendously different world than the one we live in. And it just kind of shows you how much opportunity there is. The headline stealer over the side of the Atlantic is all, fine, I'll pay later. And for me, one of the upsides of the model I see is that essentially yeah, it's free as long as you pay it. Yep. It's kind of another way around that same problem that, well, as long as you're paying, you're getting interest-free. And then we hit you with the the late fees if you miss it, which in some ways is saying, well, the, the right people are paying. But of course, if you can't afford your, your installment, you almost certainly can't afford your late fees. 
you know, ideally would have just said no to that person. But hopefully through tech and interesting business models, we can come through a, a route that's better than ours, where we would start at what are you, essentially what's the, the government allowed maximum and, and work slowly downward from there. Yeah, I think buy now, pay later is, is a really interesting innovation in, in certain ways. I think there's certain questions about affordability in, in the right business models, but you're taking merchant value and using it to fund the, the the financing for consumers, which is great. And the merchants are paying for a lot of that. And I think it is the sharp end of the spear that we'll see in other places, which is the embedding of the financial transaction more deeply with the transaction that it's finally... Like, I kind of say this to banks all the time, like most of the loans you make to consumers, they didn't want the loan. They wanted something else. Like, they, they didn't want a car loan. They wanted a car. They didn't want a home loan. They wanted a house. And you know, the idea that we would embed those inside the home purchase or the auto purchase transaction in a more deep way over time, particularly as those transactions shift to a digital medium, just makes sense. And buy now, pay later is maybe the sharp end of that. But I think the same capabilities are going to be coming to, you know, digital retailing for auto and, and you know, as you find the big home shopping sites are trying to integrate financing. And I promise you they're going to start making a more integrated experience for someone who's shopping for a home to finance that home at the same time. Whether that's a, a free product or an interest-bearing product over a longer period of time is, I think, not semantics, but kind of details because that larger trend of, hey, we can embed the financing into the, the commercial transaction and it gives a better experience for the customer. I think that's a, a real trend that's, that's going to be solid and, and cross a lot of boundaries in terms of the markets it hits. Yeah, and I saw that in our numbers early in COVID where every time there was a hard lockdown in the UK, the applications for personal loans disappeared. So when there was nothing to do, nobody wanted a personal loan. But when we opened up a bit and people could travel, people could go out again, personal loans returned. And then we went to our second lockdown and they disappeared again. So, I mean, it's, it's obvious, but I mean, yeah, you're right that you're basically lending the money to your customer to give it to the shopkeeper. So, yeah, take out the middleman yeah. essentially and, uh, and take pay out the shopkeeper. The middleman. <laughs> I also think I, this may be different in different geographies. So maybe we're speaking different languages in Europe versus the US. But I do think there's also a, a secular shift among particularly younger consumers to be more intentional about their borrowing decisions. And, and I mean that to say like credit cards, I think you're often the consumer is not always aware when they cross the line between transacting and borrowing and what the timeline and cost of the borrowing they may be doing is. But I have the credit line. I swipe the credit card at Ikea. I know I can pay it back over time, but like, how long will it take? How much will it cost? How much? That stuff was kind of, you know, ambiguous to them. It was difficult to tease out. And I think BNPL also represents this desire. I think you see it in the shift to debit card usage versus credit cards for some younger consumer sets to say, I want to know what I'm transacting. I can do that on a debit card. I want to know when I'm borrowing. And when I borrow, I want to know what it's going to cost me and how long it's going to take me to pay it. And if you're borrowing for two weeks, three weeks, a credit card is great. But if you're borrowing for six months, Credit card is not the best way to do that in many instances. It's difficult to understand the cost to you. The younger generation is saying, hey, I've seen my parents in credit card debt that they don't quite understand and how to how to get out of. And like, how do I set myself up where I understand the debt obligations I'm taking on as I take them on? And that's a it's a little different thing, but I think a really interesting general trend for what's driving some of that behavior. Yeah, no, it's certainly a theme echoed by a lot of businesses here talking to, to young borrowers that there's really quite a well-educated group of young customers coming up who are yeah, much more intentional about it. And early on, a credit card was a simpler spending tool. And for a long time, the only really convenient spending tool if you wanted to be able to make relatively large purchases. And you could borrow from it. And the danger came that you could go out intending just to spend and end up borrowing through the temptation or just sort of a little bit of lack of discipline. And you never really knew when you were crossing the line. It wasn't, it's not clear. So I think it's, yeah, it's interesting product. You kind of mess up your future month as well, because if you're paying minimum payment this month, I mean, you always could go and you could move things around, but it would have taken a lot of work 
to avoid maybe booking some international travel. You put your plane tickets on to pay down, but then you go to the shop to do your groceries just afterwards. That's probably going to get on minimum payment too, unless you're really being careful. So yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, you got to really look at like, how much am I intending to revolve? Like, what is my, like it, it, it's mixed, right? The, the two. And that's, I think where for consumers, the confusion can come and where a lot of consumers now, I think like to separate. They like to go, hey, it's my transacting account. This is my borrowing account. I want to know what I'm borrowing, how much it costs when I'm paying it off. And I want to transact on the other one. Sort of loops all the way around back again to the personal loan industry and in that it is the simpler in terms of conceptually way to lend money. Here's how much money I'm lending to you over this time with these terms. And now we can do that, whether that's funding a wallet, where it's funding a merchant directly. I think that side, the lending side, making it simple, making it easy, fits a number of different business models on the front end. But in terms of you guys at Upstart, that work you've done to do it quickly to, because that's the other side, I mean, to be able to lend quickly to a customer, much more sort of scoring them or giving that score more often for smaller amounts is going to just be the normal way for lending, I guess, for everything other than mortgage and auto loans for for a long time. That, you know, the credit card, you would, I mean, that's the other thing you hear a lot of today. You know, I got my credit card. The credit card I have now was approved when I was living in Hong Kong. And I was in Hong Kong for eight years and I moved to England three years ago. And when I moved to England, American Express just asks you, what is your old credit card number? They ping the guys in the other country. And based on your performance in the other country, they give you a new card. Yeah, yeah. So I guess technically three years ago, they checked my credit here. But in some ways, it was 11 years ago when last I went through the approval process. And of course, every month they can see I'm paying and they can see my transactions. They can keep modeling me in the background. But really, it was a long time ago they did all their real careful checks. Whereas we're moving to a world where every transaction may be an individual credit, which uh, means you need to be a lot clearer about the score. And you can't rely on things that take three months to filter through and only get updated every month. You want data that's fresher and more new. Yeah. Well, and I think the, I mean, this is a slightly off topic from what you're saying, but I, I do think one of the weaknesses with the score as a concept is that it doesn't scale well to different kinds of transactions. My credit score is my credit score if I'm applying for a thousand dollar credit card or a million dollar mortgage. And sure, you have different policies for those two, but there's no way like I can be an exceptionally good risk for one and an exceptionally bad risk for the other. And, and blending them into a unified score doesn't make sense. So detaching the credit scoring from the transaction for which you're asking about credit is kind of an odd concept to me. And I understand how we got there. But I do think, you know, we've moved to more scoring individual loans. And you're right that there are companies out there that are already looking at how do I on a credit card uh, transaction model like that, how do I score the individual transaction? One of the things the buy now pay later guys will tell you is they get access to SKU level data to underwrite, which is different than the credit. They, they know what you're buying uh, and they can actually use that for some advantage in underwriting versus just knowing the merchant. Thinking about how granular can you make the decision you're making and how much better a decision can you make about the level of risk it represents on a, on a tighter level is a really interesting kind of thing that we're moving to as data becomes more real time. Yeah, very interesting and, and bringing up its own issues or, or complications around things like the, the messaging to a customer who tries to buy a pair of sneakers and gets declined because it's the wrong brand of sneakers or sneakers. You don't aren't do that. A- <laughs> Just so it's clear. So I've never had to deal with the AAN issues around declines for SKUs. Yeah. It's not in my world. I know. But I, I think know, it but- is part of what VNPL does. And that's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting element. And I, it's a real question. Like if it does correlate to loss, interesting question. One of the reasons that I sort of, hear lots of different parts of uh, BNPL and whatever's happening uh, in the marketplace today is from uh, this podcast. And you know, I found you from from your podcast, Leaders in Lending, which I recommend uh, yes. to everybody. What was the 
story behind that. How did you get into podcasting? And and I think you've been about two years that you've been going. How's that journey been? A year and a half, something like that. A year, year, a couple months. It's been fun. Actually, it was not an intention of mine. I sometimes get asked as like a career desire. Not, not really. But as we were taking our technologies into the banking sector, and as I said, Upstart primarily partners with banks and credit unions, we wanted a way to, to talk to them, to hear their perspectives and to share some of what we had seen or, or, or were hearing in the industry. And we thought a podcast was a really interesting way to do it. And so I somehow was tapped as the host. <laughs> so sort of an accidental thing on my part, but it's actually one of the things I enjoy most right now of my responsibilities because they are typically really interesting conversations. I learn a lot from my guests. It's always interesting to be the host and try and figure out how much you're going to say and how much you're going to ask. It's interesting for me today to be on the other side of the microphone and being the guest, but uh, we, we've really enjoyed it. And it's been, it took me a while, I think, to find my sea legs in terms of how to how to host and, and ask questions and whatever, but I, I enjoy it. And hopefully my goal every week is just put out content that gives people a new insights, interesting perspective, something that they can take back and make a practical use in their actual lives. Yeah, I'm probably giving away too many secrets of the consulting world. But when I was a consultant, I felt like at least 25% of my job was just sitting down and sort of when I was working in this market, they used to do this. Or, oh, I remember this from that place. This is how it was done. And it was before you started actually doing the real work, but just sitting around the table. It gives you this sort of sense of authority and it gives you some context for what's happening. And I think that's what these podcasts can do. Just hear a little bit about what's been done differently and why on things that you would sometimes it's entirely unrelated, but sometimes it'll give people a little bit of an idea or, or a little bit of comfort, a new idea to pursue. So it's a, obviously similar style to my show. So I'm biased, but I, I really like hearing it from. <laughs> I like the conversational shows. They're fun. Yeah. And I like hearing from people that are doing the work and able to talk about what's happening in a less structured, formal way than the, the conference presentation where we're on our best behaviors. You're also obviously by the looks of it, very busy outside of work with hiking and fishing and scouting. What else are you doing to sort of keep yourself uh, occupied in these troubling times? I am a father of two young boys. My kid, my boys are 13 and 10. So pretty much whatever they're into is what, what I'm into, which now means scouting. So we're on a backpacking fly fishing trip next weekend with them. So fingers crossed that that goes well. That's a that's a big one. But so a lot of outdoor stuff. My youngest is playing a lot of tennis. So I've uh, had to refresh my tennis game to <laughs> figure out how to be a good hitting partner. But uh, mostly things with the family, with the wife and the kids. And the boys dictate the schedule these days. We just follow them around and, and try and, and be value additive to whatever they're whatever they're doing. That yeah, sounds great. I've got two younger girls and had got the golf putter out and some balls and trying to teach them to play uh, crazy golf because they were we, we, we played for the first time the other day and there was some interesting technique so <laughs> i i tried the golf brendan it was like that was my main sport and my kids just didn't it wasn't their thing so now we're doing a little bit of volleyball and a little bit of tennis and, and i put the golf sticks away for a while i, I tried I, I wish you good luck i think it's the first prize as a parent it's a, it a sport they can't really get injured in and there's a lot of upside if they're good at it my eldest well <laughs> they both now love their horse riding though so i fear i'll be in for the most expensive of hobbies but so expensive we'll and dangerous. Yeah, the, 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 the perfect combination. But Jeff, thank you very much. It's been fantastic chatting to you and to sort of hear from from the inside about that rise of fintech and enablement of fintech in the US. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, it's great being here. Thanks for having me, Brennan. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed that, please do rate and review on your preferred podcast platform and share widely, including on LinkedIn. And while you're there, send me a connection request. The show is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, in Brighton, England, and edited with assistance by Kane Hunter. Show music is by I Am Wake, and you can find full written transcripts now in several languages, show notes, and more content at www.
howtolendmoneytostrangers.show. And I'll see you again next Thursday. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 